This is The Guardian. You're about to hear evidence as said in court during the Ben Robert Smith defamation trial, read by voice actors. The evidence has been edited in some respects for time and ease of listening, but remains an accurate representation of those sections of the trial. And this episode contains descriptions of conflict and strong language that some listeners may find distressing. Please listen with care. There's a now infamous photo, which to some has become a symbol of the alleged impropriety of Australian Special Forces soldiers in Afghanistan. You are, of course, aware that the leg became a drinking vessel in the fat lady's arms back at Tarrant Cut. I am. The photo shows Ben Robert Smith cheering as a fellow soldier drinks from a prosthetic leg taken from an Afghan man who was killed by Robert Smith on a mission in 2009. You saw people drinking from the leg? Yes. Did you yourself drink from the leg? No, I didn't. Taking a souvenir like this, a dead man's prosthetic leg from the battlefield is a war crime. And Robert Smith is clear. He tells his lawyer, Bruce McClintock, it wasn't him who removed the leg from the field, nor did he ever drink from the leg of this man. In the waging of war, in the relentless pursuit of an enemy, it can be possible to dehumanise those on the other side of the conflict. If guys want to have a drink or have downtime when they use that particular leg as some kind of, you know, gallows humour, so to speak, or to ventilate their issues with each other and just desensitise themselves to the things, the horrors of seeing, you know, dead bodies every day and bad things happening, I don't have a problem with it. Somewhere within the violence and the chaos, humanity is lost. I just think it's just a, a way that people decompress. You can't explain to people why that became, you know, the mascot, if you like. It was a significant battle that day. For some, this was a day worth commemorating, with more than just their memories. It meant something to the troop, and just people being able to let go of some of the demons that they deal with. As part of their defence in this defamation trial, the newspapers allege this leg, this macabre trophy of war, was taken that day after two Afghan men were murdered. The first, the newspapers allege, was killed in a military blooding ritual in which Robert Smith was complicit by ordering a junior member of his patrol to murder an elderly Afghan man. The other, the man with a prosthetic leg, the newspapers claim was murdered by Ben Robert Smith himself, machine gunning the man to death in front of his troop. Robert Smith strenuously denies these claims and says the two men who were killed were legitimate engagements shot lawfully in the heat of battle. To have somebody tell you that that is now somehow kind of a criminal act or a, a war crime, it makes me angry. It makes me really angry. I'm Ben Doherty, and from Guardian Australia, this is Ben Robert Smith versus the media. Ben Robert Smith, the most decorated living Australian soldier, 
is suing three newspapers for defamation in the federal court over a series of articles he claims falsely portray him as a war criminal, accusing him of committing murder in Afghanistan. The newspapers defend their reporting as true. Robert Smith denies all wrongdoing. The court has yet to deliver its judgment. It's April 2009, and the Australian army are locked in a grinding battle with the Taliban around a village called Kakarak, a known Taliban stronghold near the Darufshan River in Afghanistan's southern Ruzgan province. The village of Kakarak is a low-slung collection of mud-brick, flat roof compounds, whitewashed, and surrounded by almond trees and poppy fields in bloom. There are families who live here, but the Australians know it as a dangerous place. They lost a comrade here just a month earlier. Australia's SAS troops have been outside the wire on operation, away from the security and safety of their base for days. But late in the afternoon of April 12, 2009, Easter Sunday, the SAS soldiers received orders to raid a compound in Kakarak. My recollection is that we called for assistance because the Australian regular army had been engaged in a battle with the Taliban around Whiskey 108. Whiskey 108, the codename given to the compound by the Australian military, was believed to be housing insurgents and their weapons. Which means that we were moving towards a fight. That's what our understanding was. Australian SAS troops fight their way through the Darushan River Valley on their way to the compound. They're moving through fields of poppies and they kill at least two members of the Taliban en route to their objective. An airstrike is called in just before the SAS arrive on the scene, dropping a 500-pound bomb into the middle of the compound. It levelled all of the walls and what you've had was a lot of rubble. It's a modest mud-brick building with a central open area and rooms around the perimeter of the compound wall. SAS soldiers would have seen dozens of compounds like this during their tours of Afghanistan. But this otherwise unremarkable compound sets the scene for some of the key conflicting evidence in this extraordinary defamation trial. It became evident immediately from making entry that it was a Taliban facility. Ben Robert Smith is second in command of his patrol. They begin clearing Whiskey 108 of any threat searching rooms for any fighting-age males and looking for any weapons and bomb-making equipment. I was not clearing rooms because on the day I was carrying a paraminami machine gun, which is not really effective for room combat. The paraminami is a heavy weapon. It's hard to manoeuvre. It fires rapidly and it doesn't have as much control as the other weapons carried by the Australian troops that day. You don't want to take it into a room and have to engage. Robert Smith and his patrol clear each room methodically, finally arriving at an open-air courtyard. Once we made entry into that as a team, there was a large pile of grass towards the outer wall, which is not really typical. Person 5, a witness for Robert Smith and Robert Smith's patrol commander on this mission, says he starts investigating. We started ripping off the, the grass and the grate and the tunnel was discovered. It's disputed who actually finds the tunnel, but the courtyard where they find it becomes a hive of activity. Robert Smith and his troop know that this is a Taliban stronghold. 
they don't yet know what's in the tunnel and what dangers it might hold. Tunnels were pretty rare. We didn't see that many built like that. Two irreconcilable versions of events have emerged around this tunnel between Robert Smith and his witnesses and the soldiers who testified for the newspapers. It is agreed that there is a tunnel in the courtyard of Whiskey 108, but almost everything else is in dispute. What the soldiers say they find inside diverges dramatically and is perhaps one of the most critical questions in this entire trial. You're going to hear first Robert Smith's version of events, of what he says happened after Australian soldiers discovered the tunnel in the courtyard. In Robert Smith's account, his patrol decides on a surprise approach. They don't want to tip off any potential Taliban insurgents to the fact that they're about to go into the tunnel. The soldiers try to work out who's best going to fit into the small, crudely formed hole in the ground. Ben wasn't going to fit. I was. Person 35, one of Robert Smith's witnesses, says he's chosen for the job and he goes into the tunnel alone. Basically, the decision was made that I would clear it. As person 35 is preparing to enter the tunnel, Robert Smith says he goes outside the compound to continue clearing the area. Person 35 tells Robert Smith's lawyer, Arthur Moses, that he then takes off his body armour, his radio, and he leaves his assault rifle behind. He puts on his night vision goggles and he enters the tunnel holding his pistol. Once into the actual tunnel itself, it wasn't a complex room system or anything like that that needed multiple angles to clear anything. It really just went down, left, in for a bit, and then it opened up into a room that was easy enough to clear. Did you locate or observe any individuals in the tunnel? No. There was AK variants, chess rigs, there was documents, communication devices, those sort of things. Robert Smith and his witnesses say no one was found in the tunnel. And at some point, did you return to the surface? Yes. He was in there no more than a couple of minutes. He then came back, stuck his head up and said he was clear. Person 5 tells the lawyers for Ben Robert Smith that after the tunnel is deemed clear of insurgents, so is the entire compound. When he gave clear, that was compound secure. So compound secure was given to Person 81. Person 81 is a witness for Robert Smith and is the most senior SAS officer on the ground at Whiskey 108. Who called that in? I did. Once a compound is declared secure, there's usually what's known as a patrol commander's rendezvous meeting. They call it an RV. Person 5 says Person 81 is running this RV meeting in the tunnel courtyard. A plan was being formulated and then I heard gunshots outside the compound towards the northwest corner. Robert Smith is not at this meeting. He tells the court at this time he's outside the compound walls when he's confronted by an insurgent. I came out of the entry point, I turned right, started to walk down that track, and when I did that, I saw an insurgent moving from right to left on the outside of the line of the compound. The individual that I saw was actually running in a crouch and was holding a bolt-action rifle in his hand. It all happens in a matter of seconds. Robert Smith says he shoots and kills the insurgent holding the rifle, but then his gun stops. And I engaged that individual with my minimi, but I had a stoppage. He says he pulls the trigger 
and nothing happens. I drop down onto my knee to rectify the stoppage. And it's in this moment, a moment of defencelessness, that Robert Smith says he's confronted by yet another insurgent. And while I was doing that, I'm not... I don't recollect who it was. There was a second insurgent out there and that insurgent was dropped by one of the guys that came up behind me or or shot from behind me. Robert Smith says he doesn't remember who this comrade is. Well, my assumption was it was someone in my team, but I actually don't know. Having heard these gunshots and having left the RV meeting, I ran out of the compound on the western side towards where the gunshots were coming from. Person 5 says he finds Robert Smith, having just fired his weapon. I shouted to RS and asked him if he was all right. He said, yep, they just engaged two squirters to the north. Squirters, insurgents attempting to flee the area. And did you say anything? I said, are they KIA? He said, yes. KIA, killed in action. And then what did you do? I then went back towards the team commander's RV. And when you went back to the RV meeting, did you say anything to Person 81 or anybody else? I informed Person 81 there were two KIA on the northwest corner of the compound. And did the RV meeting with the team commanders or the patrol commanders continue? It did. But the evidence of Person 81, Robert Smith's own witness, does not support this. He tells Arthur Moses he never heard gunshots and that Person 5 never left the meeting, nor did anybody tell him there'd been two insurgents killed outside the compound. Do you recall having any engagements whilst you were in the compound? No. Do you recall receiving any reports of any engagements taking place whilst you were within the compound? Not that I can recall. Lawyers for the newspapers interrogate Robert Smith's version of events. In his testimony, he says these men are killed outside of the compound and outside the line of sight of other SAS soldiers on the raid, who testify... They're inside at this moment. No other witnesses other than Person 5 say they saw Robert Smith outside of the compound during this time. Robert Smith tells Nicholas Owens that the only person who can corroborate these two engagements is the man who, by Robert Smith's own account, saved him from potential Taliban attack. This is a person who, on your account, saved your life. Yes. But to this day, Robert Smith says he doesn't remember who this soldier is. Do I have a recollection of the individual during that engagement who fired? And the answer to that question is no, I don't. Robert Smith says he drags the body of the man he has killed back to an area with more cover. So I'd moved out and grabbed hold of my guy and dragged him back perhaps five metres, just so it was on the inside of the corner of the building side. And he says his unnamed comrade does the same thing with the body of the man that he shot dead. That is, two bodies moved from where they lay after they were shot. But a day later, Robert Smith comes back to court and he changes his evidence. He tells the court he made a mistake. He says he did move the body of the man that he had shot, but the man who was shot by the other SAS soldier was not moved. That body lay where it fell. It's a mistake the newspaper's lawyer, Nicholas Owens, is quick to interrogate. In reflecting on your evidence yesterday, 
Did it occur to you that saying that the body, the second body, had been moved to a position two metres north of your body would pose a problem for the coherence of your overall account? No, it's just not what I recall. Why were you prepared to give such a specific account if it's not true? Because the events we're referring to happened over a decade ago. I've had six deployments to Afghanistan. I've had multiple engagements. I realised that that was not what happened at that exact moment, so I felt it best to make sure I'm trying to recollect what is my memory of the event, as opposed to the information that I've seen, that I've heard, trying to remember what I recollect. And so I realised that was not right, and so I wanted to make sure that I'm trying to be as accurate as possible. Was that second body ever moved? I don't know. Robert Smith's version of events are quick and chaotic, as war often is, and hinges on the fact that at this moment, he's still in the middle of battle. He tells the court the men were killed because they posed a direct threat to Australian troops. One who had a prosthetic leg, he saw armed and running, and he killed him within the troops' rules of engagement. The other was killed by another Australian soldier, saving Robert Smith's life as his own weapon had stopped. Ben Robert Smith maintains that these two men were squirters, they were legitimate Taliban targets who were lawfully killed as they were fleeing the compound. But the evidence of Person 81, Robert Smith's own witness, once again conflicts with Person 5 and Robert Smith's version of events. Person 81 does not remember seeing or hearing of these two men killed outside the compound, nor does he remember seeing anything suspicious. But he does tell lawyers for Robert Smith that he saw more than one fighting-age male alive inside the compound courtyard. Are you able to recall, in terms of the area that you moved into after the Whiskey 108 compound was called Secure, whether you saw any Afghan fighting-age males in the Whiskey 108 compound? I did see people in Whiskey 108, yes. He does not remember what they looked like or where they came from. As to their actual description, I would say I couldn't give you an accurate picture, but there was people inside the compound, yes. But there's no explanation given by Robert Smith or the rest of his witnesses for where the fighting-aged Afghan men that Person 81 saw might have come from. The newspapers, however, allege these men were found hiding and discovered by the Australian soldiers in the tunnel of the Whiskey 108 courtyard and then murdered. He crawled out to the bottom and then he stood up and then I grabbed him. Person 43, a patrol commander who was called to give evidence by the newspapers, was cross-examined by Robert Smith's lawyer, Arthur Moses. He tells the court he helped to pull men out of the tunnel. Well, he started standing up and I grabbed him as he was starting to stand up. When you grabbed him, where were his hands? Out in front of him in a universal I give up position. Person 43 tells the court one of the men was elderly and he was dressed in light-coloured traditional dress. Uh, An elderly Afghani male with a beard and dressed in what we'd refer to as local clothing. Another witness for the newspapers, Person 40, says the other man who came out of the tunnel had a prosthetic leg. One had a distinctive limp and that's the person with the prosthetic leg. Immediately upon, you know, coming out of the tunnel, he he was lifting his trousers, sort of pointing to the prosthetic leg expecting some sort of sympathy, you know, from the troops. 
Over more than 100 days of hearings in this trial, this is one of the simplest but most fiercely contested questions. Were there any men in the tunnel at Whiskey 108? I kept a tally of the soldiers who testified if they had or hadn't seen men come out of the tunnel. Five soldier witnesses for the newspapers said there were men discovered hiding inside. Four witnesses for Ben Robert Smith said no men were in the tunnel, along with Robert Smith himself. Five men say soldiers came out of the tunnel. Five say there was no one there. But a tally is, in many ways, a false equivalence. This is not a football game. The question before the judge is not how many, but how credible. Which version of events is to be believed? But there was another soldier in the tunnel courtyard at Whiskey 108 that day. He's known before the court as Person 4. Person 4 has been subpoenaed by the newspapers to give evidence, but he refuses to answer questions about what he saw and what he did at Whiskey 108 on the grounds of potential self-incrimination. There is some variation in testimony from the newspapers' witnesses about how many men came out of the tunnel. But the newspaper's case is that two men emerged from that tunnel. They say one man was elderly, dressed in white, traditional clothing, and the other man had a prosthetic leg. These men were hiding and they were fighting age males, meaning they were potential Taliban and a threat to the Australian troops. The newspapers say the two men were immediately pucked. They're placed under the control of the Australian soldiers. I saw two or three soldiers standing around a person in white. On the day of the Whiskey 108 raid, Person 18 is a junior member of Robert Smith's patrol and he's giving evidence for the newspapers. He says he sees one of the men in the courtyard where the tunnel was found. I gave that person a quick glance. It wasn't a, an eyesore for me. It was, it was just an Afghan that was found. So it was nothing that was out of the ordinary. Person 18 tells the lawyer for the newspapers, Lindell Barnett, he remembers clearly this man is under the control of the SAS. Was there anything else about that person that indicated to you he was under control of Australian forces? I believe, and I still can remember him having his cuffs on his wrist. According to the rules of engagement, which are drawn from the Geneva Conventions and which essentially lay out the laws of war, once a member of the Taliban is placed under the control of Australian soldiers, once he's no longer a threat, he can no longer be harmed. He cannot be killed. And you've given a description of the man that was standing around. Are you able to give any further description of that man to your recollection? I just remember he was um, dressed in white. While this man is being placed under the control of the Australian troops, Person 41, a witness for the newspapers, says he's busy clearing the various rooms which opened out into the courtyard of the compound. I then started to hear some loud voices and talking in a bit of a commotion outside in the courtyard. I then stepped out of the room I was in and to my immediate left, I noticed RS and Person 4 standing there. Person 4 is one of the most junior SAS soldiers on this raid. He's got a nickname, allegedly used by some of his comrades. They call him the Rookie, or Rookie Fuck. And just beyond them, uh, squatting down against the wall, just near the tunnel entrance, was an Afghan male squatting down. I was then approached by Person 4. 
Person 41 tells the newspaper's lawyer, Nicholas Owens, that this man matches the description given by other newspaper witnesses for one of the men who was pulled from the tunnel. Can you tell me what you remember about the appearance of the Afghan male that you saw? Older male dressed in traditional Afghan loose top, uh, clothing either white or very light colour. White or light. The same colour clothing person 18 and person 43 say they saw a man wearing near the tunnel entrance. Person 4 and RS then approached me. RS, Robert Smith's nickname in the regiment. They said, hey, person 41, can we borrow your suppressor? A suppressor is a piece of equipment a soldier can add to their weapon. It doesn't make a rifle completely silent, but it does deaden the sound and masks the muzzle flash. Person 4's patrol commander and witness for Robert Smith, person 5, said it was expected and enforced that all members of his patrol carried their own suppressor. I thought it was a bit strange request at first, but I but I complied. He then proceeded to turn around and commence fitting the suppressor to his M4 rifle. They started to walk back towards where the Afghan male was squatting against the wall. To be clear, who's they? RS and Person 4. Within the SAS and within each of its patrols, there is a clear established hierarchy. Senior soldiers like Robert Smith give orders and rookies like Person 4 follow them. I then thought to myself, I think I know what's about to happen here. So I just stood there for another few seconds and and watching. Uh, Person 4 stood over facing where the Afghan male was towards the tunnel entrance. RS then walked down and grabbed the Afghan male by the scruff of the shirt, picked him up, marched him a couple of metres forward to... uh, uh, He was in front of person four. He then kicked him in the back of the legs behind the knees until he was kneeling down in front of person four. He pointed to the Afghan and said to person four, shoot him. Person 41 says he thinks he knows what's going to happen next, but he doesn't want to see it. So he steps into one of the rooms on the edge of the courtyard. I didn't wish to witness what was about to happen. But the newspapers allege that the Afghan man is then shot in the back of the head by person four, following an order from Ben Robert Smith, something he denies outright. After a bit of time, I stepped back out and I noticed that person four was the only one there at the time and there was a dead Afghan male um, at his feet. What did you do, having seen that dead Afghan and Person 4? I walked up to Person 4. I don't believe anything was said. He removed the suppressor from his rifle and he gave it back to me. When he handed it to me, I, I, it, it was warm. And, and so I knew it, it had been used to shoot that Afghan with Person 4's M4. If this killing was meant to be clandestine, Robert Smith's lawyers say, Suppressed gunfire would still have been heard. And why, if Person 41 felt asking for a suppressor was such a strange request, why did he not question what it was going to be used for? Why did he willingly hand over his suppressor to Robert Smith and to Person 4? But the newspapers argue that these particular details of a suppressor being handed over are superficially odd, and so much so it makes it highly unlikely that Person 41 imagined or misremembered 
or fabricated it. What did you do with the suppressor when person four handed it back to you? I fitted it back on my rifle and then I walked over just a couple of steps and had a look at the dead Afghan uh, who was lying on the ground in, in front of person four. And can you tell us what you saw when you looked at that dead Afghan? I noticed he had been shot once in the head and that Afghan was dead lying on the ground, quite a bit of blood flowing down around from his, from his head wound. I believe he was lying on his back. The newspapers allege this kill was premeditated. They argue it was part of a military blooding ritual. The term blooding has been used for centuries by militaries around the world to describe a new member making their first kill in action or in battle. It doesn't necessarily refer to an unlawful killing, but the newspapers allege that in the lead-up to the raid on Whiskey 108, Robert Smith and Person 5 were intent on blooding Person 4 and that by ordering a junior soldier to kill an unarmed prisoner, they were complicit in his murder. Do you have any recollection of hearing anything being said on the topic of rookies? Yes. Person 24 is being questioned by Nicholas Owens, the newspaper's lawyer, about the lead-up to the mission. I was in my patrol room with members of my patrol. Do you remember who else was in there at the time? No, I don't. Person 24 tells the court that Person 5 entered the room. He was in a jovial manner, dancing or a a bit of a jig at our doorway, and he said that uh, we are going to blood the rookie. And did you have an understanding at that point who the rookie was that he was referring to? Yes. Who did you understand him to be referring to? Person 4. Another soldier, known as Person 14, who's also giving evidence for the newspapers, says he recalls a similar conversation. Person 5 said... I'm going to blood the rookie. Who did you understand the rookie to be? Person 4. Person 14 and Person 24 are in the same patrol and they both say Robert Smith didn't hear this conversation. These are just the words of Person 5. But Person 5 tells Owens he never used the term blooding and he denies giving Person 4 an order to shoot the old man. And I put it to you that when you said to them, I'm going to blood the rookie... You're referring to your intention to give the person for the opportunity to kill a member of the Taliban? No. And what I want to put to you is that you, when you arrived with person four next to Mr. Robert Smith, you told person four to shoot the old man. That absolutely did not happen. But person 14 tells Nicholas Owens that when person five returned from the Whiskey 108 mission, he made his motivations very clear. Try and remember the words that you heard him say. I finally blooded the rookie. In a blistering cross-examination, Nicholas Owens puts these allegations to Ben Robert Smith. And I put to you that you grabbed the old man and you knelt him down in front of person four. That's false. And I put to you that you said words to the effect of shoot him. There were no men in the tunnel. And I put to you that person four shot the old man in the head. That is completely false. Earlier in the trial, when he was giving his evidence in chief, Robert Smith expressed his horror at being accused of blooding person four. It makes me angry, is how I feel. I get very angry about it. And the reason I get angry about it is because that day, particularly, a lot of people 
Even some of the respondents' witnesses will admit they thought that they were going in for a big battle and they were in fear of their life. But nonetheless, to have somebody tell you that that is now somehow kind of a criminal act or a, a war crime, it makes me angry. It makes me really angry. There's one person who could perhaps settle this impasse, and that's person four. But person four refuses to give evidence about what happened at Whiskey 108, even after the judge offers him a certificate against self-incrimination. Your Honour, I object on the grounds that it may incriminate myself. Person four does give evidence for the newspapers in this trial on other matters, and you've heard from him in a previous episode. But Justice Anthony Basanko rules that person four will not be compelled to give evidence about what happened at Whiskey 108 on that day. And it's accepted by all parties that the court cannot draw any inference from Person 4's refusal to answer questions. The death of the old man dressed in white is one alleged unlawful killing, one of the allegations made by the newspapers, which Robert Smith denies and says defames him. The raid continues, and so do the allegations. After witnessing the alleged conversation between Robert Smith and Person 4 in the courtyard of Whiskey 108, Person 41 says he moves to another part of the compound. He says he's in a state of shock. He's questioning himself on where to go and what to do next. He says he then notices Robert Smith out of the corner of his eye. RS was walking up. He had an Afghan male by the scrap of his clothing uh, with, with, with his left arm. Person 41 says that the Afghan man Robert Smith is holding has the prosthetic leg. He had a machine gun in his right hand, right arm holding it up and sort of frog marching the Afghan by the scruff of the neck with his, with his left arm. And what happened after that? I turned to face RS to see what was happening. Um, he then proceeded to throw the Afghan male down onto the ground. Afghan male landed on his back. RS then reached down, grabbed him by his shoulder, flipped him over onto his stomach, and then I observed him lower his machine gun and shoot approximately three to five rounds into the back of the Afghan male. After he had done that, he, he looked up and saw me standing there, and he looked at me and said, are we all cool? Are we all good? Um, I just replied, yeah, no worries. I continued to look at him. He then stood up and walked past me and, and went back into the exit that I had come towards the courtyard. This is the second unlawful killing that the newspapers allege happened on that day. Person 41 says he cannot look. I wasn't going to bother to look at the dead Afghan. He moves elsewhere and says he runs into person 40. Person 40 then asks me, using my name, hey, person 41, do you know what happened to those two blokes that were pulled out of the tunnel? Person 40 is a witness for the newspapers. And I just realised where those two Afghans had come from. My reply to him was, no, mate, I was just in that cow shed there. Person 40 is not asked to confirm if this conversation occurred. 
Why didn't you tell Person 40 what you'd seen? I just wanted to keep it quiet about the whole thing and, and feared it wasn't my business. And, you know, I, I was towing the line, so to speak. So I was a new trooper. My very first trip with the SAS, I, I didn't... I, I just wanted to toe the line and and it's an unwritten rule. Just, you know, you just go along with, with whatever happens. Two other soldiers also testified. They watch as an Australian soldier matching Robert Smith's description, shoot someone with a machine gun. One of those soldiers is person 24. Mr Robert Smith walked out of the compound of the spot I indicated. At this stage, he was holding a man in his hand. Um, It appeared that he'd come off his feet and he was being held parallel to the ground. He was held by the pants or the back of the shirt. He marched approximately 15 metres directly out from that entrance, dropped the man on the ground and immediately began with a machine gun burst into his back. Are you able to recall either how long the burst was or how many rounds approximately or anything of that? Eight to ten rounds. Person 24 says he remembers being with Person 14 while this scene unfolds before him. After you had seen this, did either you or Person 14 say anything? I recall saying to Person 14 at the time, did we just witness an execution? And do you recall if Person 14 said anything? I don't recall what he said. He did say something, but I don't recall what that was. Person 14, a soldier witness for the newspapers, is not asked about this conversation with Person 24, but he does say that he remembers a very similar series of events. As I turned to my right, there was like three Australian soldiers and a blank object, which was like a similar to a human was 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 thrown to the ground and it was like a thud. And, and then a soldier raised their Minimi F-89 para and fired it like an extended burst. It was loud, like a one second, you know, and I was like, okay. And that person turned and walked away out of sight. Person 14 is asked if he can identify any of these three Australian soldiers, but because of the conditions on that day, he can't say who they were. It was last light was closing in. It was, it was hard to identify personnel, people that I even knew. Given that we all dress similar and, you know, wear similar items. As for the paraminimi machine gun, Person 14 admitted in cross-examination he couldn't be sure who was carrying that weapon during the raid. But when the assault was finished... Who did you see have the paraminimi? Ben Robert Smith. Robert Smith's lawyer, Arthur Moses, accuses Person 14 of colluding with Person 24 and of lying to the court about what they saw in the courtyard of Whiskey 108. But Person 24 resolutely stands by his evidence and says that not only did Robert Smith kill the man with a prosthetic leg, but he did it knowing that others would see. What I think is that it was an exhibition execution. He wanted people to see that he was going to kill someone out there in front of everyone. Robert Smith strenuously denies these allegations to his lawyer, Bruce McClintock. Well, I say it's ridiculous again for a couple of reasons. Because firstly, if you want to pick someone up who is non-compliant, 
wearing the equipment that we had and carrying a weapon, particularly a machine gun, you cannot use that weapon. No way. No way you would do that. And none of Robert Smith's witnesses say they saw him murder any Afghan men who'd been placed under the control of Australian soldiers. Just by the way to make this absolutely clear, had you pucked the man you shot? No. Robert Smith says these men were insurgents, suspected members of the Taliban, found fleeing a known stronghold, and they were legitimate engagements killed lawfully outside of the compound. The newspapers, however, say these men came from the tunnel, were placed under the control of the Australian soldiers, and later shot in defiance of the laws of war. There are a few contemporaneous written accounts of what happened at Whiskey 108 that day. But Person 18, one of the newspaper's witnesses, was responsible for documenting the raid. It's a process known as sensitive site exploitation. They call it SSE. Person 18's job included taking photos of the tunnel, of any weapons confiscated, and of the bodies of any people killed on the raid. And this evidence, collected from the bodies of the two slain Afghan men, is a key part of the newspaper's defence. I did a search commencing at the head, then moving down the right-hand side. Person 18 tells the court he started with the body of the man with a prosthetic leg. Everything from this person's pockets was put into, the, into a bag. Person 18 tells the court it wasn't necessarily standard operating procedure or required at the time, but it was part of his process to document and photograph everything an enemy prisoner or enemy killed in action had on them at the time, including any weapons they were carrying. One of the newspaper's lawyers, Lindell Barnett, argues the evidence collected by Person 18 immediately following the death of the two men is critical. Did you locate any weapons on this EKIA? No. This evidence, the newspapers argue, makes Robert Smith's version of events untenable. If this man with a prosthetic leg was, as Robert Smith put it, running at him with his hand over his weapon outside the compound, then that weapon would have been discovered during SSE and photographed by Person 18. After finishing his observations of the body of the man with the prosthetic leg, Person 18 tells the court he begins SSE on a second body, that of an elderly Afghan man. This body was a person in white lying on his back. When I got there, he was lying on his back and there was blood over the ground. Person 18 collects anything the old man dressed in white was carrying and he puts it in a clear plastic bag, just as he did for the man with a prosthetic leg. He then takes a photo and this photo is presented as evidence to the court. In it, you can see the body of the elderly man and the SSE bag with handwritten notes from Person 18. Written across the front of the bag are three pieces of information vital for the newspaper's case. Can you tell his honour what the information on that bag signifies? This is the three bits of information we required for any event. The first number, 50, being the puck number, which is also in reference to the person who conducted the event. As in the number given to the person under control and a reference to the SAS soldier who'd pucked them. Below that 108 is the compound number meaning this person was killed during the raid on Whiskey 108. And below that northwest corner signifies where this was located in reference to the compound. As in where inside the compound the body was located. And you say it says NW Corn Tunnel. What was that intended to signify? 
That signifies there was a northwest corner and vicinity to the tunnel. This is a significant moment in court. And Justice Anthony Basanko makes a rare interjection to clarify. Sorry, the northwest corner? And what did you say after that? In vicinity of the tunnel, Your Honour. The newspapers argue this testimony represents a critical problem for Robert Smith's case. Robert Smith says this alleged insurgent, the old man dressed in white, was shot and killed by another Australian soldier outside the walls of the compound, and that's where his body remained. Only two witnesses, Robert Smith and Person 5, say they saw this body outside the compound. But when Person 18 is asked about the location of the body, he says his memory is clear. Where was this body located? This was inside the compound. Are you able to say where inside the compound? Roughly near the tunnel entrance. The newspapers say that if Person 18's account is to be believed, if Person 18 is a reliable witness, and this man's body was found inside the compound, then it follows that this man was shot inside the compound. And the newspaper's lawyers argue that this fact is, and I quote, inconsistent in a fundamental and irretrievable way with the Robert Smith case. We'll be back after this. As Robert Smith's lawyers begin questioning the witnesses for the newspapers, their cross-examination focuses on discrediting the soldiers' accounts, finding faults in memory and inconsistencies in testimony. And it escalates, quickly in some cases, to direct accusations of fantasy or mendacity. Robert Smith's barrister, Arthur Moses, is forensic. He's assertive, bordering on aggressive and almost ill-tempered. And the witnesses he's attempting to rattle are soldiers trained to withstand such scrutiny. But Moses remains intent on interrogating why no one in the Gothic troop reported these unlawful actions after the raid on Whiskey 108. And in relation to this issue concerning the events of the 12th of April 2009, what I'm going to suggest to you is that the reason you didn't report it to the patrol commander was it didn't happen. That's incorrect. I I know what I saw. Person 41 testified about both alleged unlawful killings. But on the ground at Whiskey 108, with the operation still ongoing, when Person 40, his superior, asks him about what happened to the two pucks in the compound courtyard, Person 41 doesn't speak up. Despite being aware of the obligation to report any breaches of the rules of engagement, he doesn't flag Robert Smith's actions up the chain of command, during or at any time after the raid. He tells the court he wanted to toe the line. He was a junior member of the patrol and he doesn't want to cause trouble. But this hasn't stopped Person 41 from making other complaints in the past. And Moses argues Person 41 not reporting these alleged unlawful killings suggests they never happened. Is it the case that you think you know what you saw? I know what I saw, sir. Moses continues this line of questioning with Person 24. And you say that at this debrief, there was a discussion about the killing of a puck. Yes. The soldier who says he saw Robert Smith commit what he called an exhibition execution says that following the mission, there was a patrol debrief, which is where the members of a patrol discuss what's happened during a mission so the patrol commander can prepare a report. Did you say something? Yes. Person 6 
who was Person 24's patrol commander at Whiskey 108, did not testify at this trial. But he was at this meeting. What did you tell them? I outlined what had happened on the ground and that BRS had pulled a man out of the compound and shot him in the back. Person 24 says he assumed, having raised a potential war crime with his superior, that it was going to get passed up the chain of command. That's how things are supposed to work in the military and in the SAS. If you have a problem, you raise it with a person above you. In this case, that soldier is person six. I made an assumption that passing that information through the chain of command, it would be dealt with appropriately. But it's not pushed up the chain of command and person six files no reports containing the allegations that person 24 said he made against Robert Smith after the raid. The same allegations he repeats in court. Robert Smith's lawyers argue the fact these allegations were never taken any further by the patrol commander, Person 6, again suggests these killings never happened. Because Person 6 is known throughout the SAS for his antipathy towards Robert Smith. In the words of one soldier, he's an avid BRS hater. And therefore, he'd be looking for any opportunity to undermine Robert Smith. Person 24 goes on to give extraordinary and revelatory evidence about some of the attitudes that prevailed inside the SAS. Despite being a witness for the newspapers, he tells the court, Robert Smith shouldn't even be here. He shouldn't have to defend his actions in Afghanistan. I still don't agree with the fact that BRS is here and he's under an extreme amount of duress for killing bad dudes who we went over to kill. Robert Smith's lawyers argue the fact no one reported these two unlawful killings is indication they never happened. But the newspapers point to their witnesses who gave strikingly similar accounts of what happened that day. The newspapers argue these accounts are so similar they could not have been independently invented. However, Arthur Moses, Robert Smith's lawyer, posits these stories are so similar because rumours had circulated throughout the SAS after the raid and clouded people's memories. Now, you made a reference to the Special Air Services Regiment being like a country wives club. Yes. Without being derogatory of country wives, why were you making that analogy for? It's just a very, what has been a very toxic environment. Any rumour is, is expanded tenfold. Person 18, the soldier responsible for conducting SSE on the two Afghan men killed at Whiskey 108, also did not report any suspicions he might have had about Ben Robert Smith's alleged actions at Whiskey 108, despite hearing other soldiers talk about them in the years after the raid. He says that rumours within the regiment spread like wildfire. That is, becomes exaggerated. I believe so, yes. Moses argues that that is all these allegations against Robert Smith are. They're rumours. Rumours which have been repeated and elevated to fact and have destroyed a man's reputation. It gets difficult at times then to understand what's fact and what's fiction, correct? No. And you decided you jumped in and spread a bit of rumours yourself in relation to Whiskey 108, correct? That's incorrect. The newspapers, however argue the existence and the tenacity of these rumours doesn't undermine their case. In fact, they say it does the opposite. They argue rumours spread about Robert Smith's alleged war crimes 
because they were true. As Nicholas Owens begins his cross-examination to convince the judge of the newspaper's version of events, he moves away from rumour and speculation and makes arguments focused on collusion and on character. He seeks to discredit Robert Smith's witnesses. Owens argues the soldiers giving evidence for Robert Smith aren't taking the stand just to protect the Victoria Cross recipient's reputation. Their own reputations are at stake. He tells the court that Person 5, Robert Smith's patrol commander, and who says he heard gunshots during the rendezvous meeting, also stands accused of war crimes separate to the raid on Whiskey 108. He denies any wrongdoing, and those are being investigated parallel to this defamation trial. What I want to put to you is that you've in fact come here to give a deliberately false account of events at Whiskey 108 because you think it will be to your advantage in deterring prosecuting authorities from pursuing you in relation to those charges. That is not true. The newspaper's lawyers allege Robert Smith and some of his key soldier witnesses, including Person 5, have been communicating in the lead-up to this trial and have been colluding in their evidence. Reason that you spoke to Mr Robert Smith, Person 35, Person 29 and Person 38, in the weeks before your outlines of evidence were to be filed about Whiskey 108, is so that you could all agree on a coherent version of events at Whiskey 108, correct? No. And you're aware that each of those individuals was in turn talking to each of the others, correct? They may have. We're all friends. Are you saying that because of the trial you can't speak to your friends anymore? Is that it? I'm putting to you is not that you shouldn't be speaking to your friends. What I'm putting to you is that what you were doing in the weeks before your outlines of evidence were due, you were speaking to your friends about the evidence that you would give. That's correct, isn't it? No. Person 5 is a combative witness during cross-examination. His answers are short, and he makes it clear he resents that other soldiers in his regiment have spoken to the media and says that if they had a problem with his actions or those of Robert Smith, they should not have litigated them in public. Anyone that you think spoke to the media you're angry with, correct? Yeah, because they're lying. You also feel betrayed, don't you, by soldiers who gave evidence to this court about what happened in Whiskey for the respondents? Betrayed, no. Disappointed more. You're angry with them for coming along and telling this court what they say happened. Can you define angry for me? You keep saying angry. How am I angry? You tell me. No, you tell me. You're the one using the words. You tell me. I'm asking the question, are you angry? No. How would you describe your emotional state towards the soldiers who've come along for the respondents? Disappointed. Why are you disappointed? Pretty simple. They spoke to the media. They've told lies. Disappointed. Your view is that an SAS member shouldn't speak to anyone outside the regiment about what happens on deployment, correct? I don't think SAS members should speak to anyone about anything. You believe in what might be called a code of silence for SAS operators, don't you? Code of silence? Mm, I, I think you're back in the 1980s there. They are... The code of silence is long gone. You think, don't you, that an SAS soldier shouldn't talk about things like war crimes, correct? Not to the media. Do you think they should talk to anyone outside the regiment about war crimes? I say the regiment. It should go through the chain of command and then up outside the regiment. You have a real problem with anyone from the SAS speaking publicly about the commission of war crimes, don't you? No, not at all, if you go through the proper channels. By proper channels, you mean so that it stays within the regiment? 
No, I've already answered that. I said if it is up through the chain of command, then the chain of command decides where that goes. That's how it should happen. You don't go through the Sydney Morning Herald to get it done. There's a clear resentment among some of the witnesses called by Robert Smith towards the media and their role in reporting these allegations and elevating this trial in the public eye. The next witness Owens cross-examines is Person 35. The court hears that Person 35 is also being investigated for two other war crimes he's alleged to have committed separate to the Whiskey 108 raid. These are allegations Person 35 says are false. Person 35 says that on the day of the raid on Whiskey 108, he and he alone went down into that tunnel. He denies there are any men in the tunnel and that anybody was pucked and that he knew of any engagements at Whiskey 108. Person 35's resentment at being questioned about his actions that day have started to spill out of the courtroom and onto social media. And you would agree, wouldn't you, that you actively follow several Instagram pages that post commentary on this trial on an almost daily basis? I do follow those pages. There's a niche online that fervently and endlessly discusses these issues and which often questions the legitimacy of the allegations against Australian soldiers, dismissing it as some sort of woke crusade. There are pictures and GIFs and memes shared within this close, tight community. Some of it is pretty vile. Now, do you remember this? Do you remember that one of the posts that you liked yesterday morning before court said, it started off with this. When some fuckwit in a suit starts questioning your integrity and using his fucktard snake logic he learned getting his tonsils bruised by some lecturer's spotty dick at their non-binary law school, remember one thing, that this cunt will be one of the first to be held down and drowned in a muddy puddle for his fancy jacket when society crumbles. You remember liking a post that said that? I don't seem to remember liking that. Who did you understand the comment in that post to be referring to? I have no idea. Well, it was me, wasn't it? No, sorry, I I don't follow. Why would it be you? Who else would it be? I don't know. The court has heard this kind of dark humour. It's pretty prevalent across the SAS. It's meant to be funny. And it's meant to agitate. And it seems to have worked. The members of Gothic Patrol are no stranger to gallows humour, as Robert Smith called it. In Person 35's Evidence in Chief, he tells Arthur Moses about another joke he'd played a part in at a costume party held at the Fat Lady's Arms in 2012. What costume did you wear? I'd come as a Klansman. Why did you choose that costume? A number of reasons. I hadn't ordered a costume online like the other guys had. I didn't want to pay for it, and it was the easiest costume to manufacture on short notice. And yeah, that was it. Prior to the party, did you speak to anybody about dressing up in that fashion? I knew one other person was coming in in blackface, so I thought it would be funny if I come as a Klansman. And why do you think it was funny? Just a parody, just for a laugh. Make fun of what? Probably just make fun of, uh, like, the actual Klan itself. It's, they're pretty pathetic, and I was just making a joke of it. The newspapers argue these actions, this barrack room humour, is indicative of character. And were you reprimanded by anyone in the chain of command for dressing up in that fashion at that party? No, I was not. I actually won the fancy dress competition that night.
There are few constants in the soldiers' recollections of the raid on Whiskey 108. There are accusations of collusion, of contamination of evidence, and of outright dishonesty. All denied. Robert Smith denies any wrongdoing and says two men were killed in the heat of battle in order to protect the lives of SAS soldiers. But the newspapers stand by their reporting and point to the evidence before the court that supports their case, that those two men were murdered. They allege the elderly Afghan man dressed in white was murdered by person four in a blooding ritual in which Ben Robert Smith was complicit. They point to the testimony of person 41, the borrowing of the suppressor, the sound of the single shot, and his evidence of seeing person four standing over the body of the slain man. And they rely on the testimony given by person 18 and which photographs appear to support that the old man's body was found inside the compound courtyard, near to the entrance of the tunnel in which he was found. The newspapers argue that if this evidence about the elderly man and the location of his body is accepted by the judge as true, that it fundamentally, perhaps fatally, undermines Robert Smith's version of events. But Robert Smith and his lawyers say this evidence cannot be relied upon to make a judgment on an allegation as serious as that of murder. In a criminal court, photographs of the location of a body, Moses argues, would not be sufficient to convict a person of murder. And yet, Moses says, that's the bar the newspapers have attempted to set before the court. There's been no autopsy, no ballistic evidence, which clearly shows the way in which the elderly man was killed, and which Moses argues would be needed to make a judgment on an accusation of murder. The lawyers for Robert Smith also argue a sufficient motive has not been established. Moses argues there's no evidence before the court that Robert Smith wanted to blood person four. The court's heard about person five's alleged motivation for blooding person four, but not Robert Smith's. On the killing of the man with a prosthetic leg, the newspapers argue that two groups of witnesses in different locations gave remarkably consistent accounts of what they say they saw happen. A man forcefully dragged outside the compound, thrown to the ground and machine gunned to death. The newspapers point to the evidence given by person 18. They say his testimony that there were no weapons near this man's body undermines Robert Smith's version of events and proves this man was not an enemy killed in the heat of battle. But Robert Smith's lawyer Moses once again argues the newspapers have failed to provide a sufficient motive for Robert Smith's alleged actions. Why, he argues. Why would a highly decorated soldier who's won medal after medal serving his country with gallantry and all the while operating within the rules of engagement, why would he suddenly commit murder in clear view? Justice Basanko must decide whose version of events is to be believed. And in this whole chaotic adversarial trial, the truth of what happened at Whiskey 108 that day may prove a deciding factor. The events surrounding the raid on the compound known as Whiskey 108 are some of the most conflicting and complicated in this entire trial. To help keep track of the long list of witnesses and evidence, we've put together a map which you can use to get a better picture of what happened at Whiskey 108. Go to Guardian Australia's Instagram page to see a version of the map.
next on the final episode of Ben Robert Smith versus the media. We hear one final argument from the newspapers regarding two anonymous letters sent to the SAS barracks in Perth. The letter stated words to the effect of, you and others have colluded to tell lies to the media and for the inquiry. Letters sent by a private investigator allegedly carrying out Robert Smith's request. I said, if you put me in the frame, if you've compromised me somewhere, you really get me fucking a good lawyer. An allegation that is denied by Robert Smith. Did you give him a threatening letter to post? No. Did you give him any envelopes to post? No. And we hear final arguments from the lawyers from each side as they attempt to convince the judge of whose version of events is true. Ben Robert Smith versus the media featured Jason Chong as the voice of Ben Robert Smith. Nicholas Owens SC was voiced by Colin Smith. Bruce McClintock SC by Dane Carson. Arthur Moses SC by Barry Lee Pierce. And Lindell Barnett by Carly Earle. Featuring the voices of Kai Smythe, Nick English, Don Mallard, Nino Bucci, Chris Huntley Turner, Danny Kim, David Herman, Paul Broadhurst, James Milsom. John Kirk. This episode was reported by me, Ben Doherty, and Ellen Lee Beater. Produced by Miles Herbert with assistance from Emma Lancaster. Series producer, Ellen Lee Beater. With production assistance from Mel Chun, Karishma Luthria, Helen Smith, Carla Arnal, Jane Lee, Daniel Simo, Tim Jenkins, Joey Watson, Laura Brearley Newton, and Rob Caldor. Sound design and mixing by Camilla Hannan with James Milsom. Executive produced by Miles Martignoni and Gabrielle Jackson. Independent and investigative journalism, like Ben Robert Smith versus the media, takes time and money. The Guardian is free from commercial bias. We're not influenced by billionaire owners, by politicians or by shareholders. And unlike many news organisations, we've not put up a paywall as we believe Everybody deserves access to quality journalism at a time when factual, honest reporting matters more than ever. To help us deliver this journalism, the kind of independent journalism the world needs, you can make a contribution to The Guardian. Every contribution, large or small, means we can keep investigating and exploring the critical issues of our time. And it only takes a minute. Just go to theguardian.com forward slash support full story.